we've been in the book of Romans, and I'll just catch you up. Last week, we were in Romans 4. We were looking at verses 1 through 8, and we examined three false gospels that if we're not careful, we, our hearts, they just easily slide into. And so those three different false gospels that we can fall into, which are not the good news of, of Jesus, right? The good news of Jesus says we are saved by faith alone in Jesus. And we can get screwed up and get into some stinking thinking and thinking wrong stuff, and here's what we can think instead. And this is bad news because it leads us to a place of anxiety or pride and usually some combination of uh, joy-stealing mixture of both of those two things. So we can fall into believing that we're saved by our good works, that we just try really hard and try our best, and hopefully that'll be enough to tip the scales when we get to heaven. Or we can church that up a little bit and we can say, well, faith matters. Jesus did everything that that he needed to do to wipe my slate clean and now it's up to me. Now that Jesus wiped my slate clean, I have to keep it clean, which we call a faith plus gospel, which is bad news because you can't keep your slate clean, right? We can't do it all by ourselves. It's by Jesus alone in faith. By Jesus alone in faith. And the last one, The last one is a false thinking that we can fall into, a false gospel that we can fall into, believing that our faith is in faith itself. Meaning that that our faith, we're saved by the amount of faith we can muster up inside of ourselves. So man, if we really believe or we can do a good job of changing our emotions, right? Some of you struggle with anxiety, some of you struggle with, with depression, and you might fall into moments where you think, God is not happy with me because I can't change how I feel, Right? And that's a, that's a faith in faith false gospel. I'm believing that if I have enough faith or if I can change my emotions, then God will be happy with me. And that's all bad news because we can't do any of that. We can't work enough. We can't add to what Jesus done, did. And sometimes as much as we wish there was an easy button or a light switch that we could flip to change our emotions, we can't. Praise Jesus, that's not the gospel. None of those three things are. We are saved by faith alone in Christ. He did it all. We rest in that. And that's what we looked at last week. Uh, Paul left us with the example of King David, which was meant to encourage us. At the end of all of this, where we looked at the three different gospels, reminded of the real gospel, we, we meet David in the Psalms, and he makes this declarative statement. He says, blessed are those whose, this, whose sins the Lord never counts against them. Blessed are those whose transgressions are not remembered. And we realized Through David's example of his life, the dude was a spiritual giant, right? You've heard of King David. Even if you're not a part of church, you at least know King David is a big deal. And that's because he did some courageous acts of faith. He slayed the giant Goliath when he was a teenage boy. Awesome! And he also failed miserably in faith at times as well. We learned last week that he was faithless to his wife. He was faithless to his family. He was faithless to his kingdom, the people he was supposed to be serving. He thought they existed to serve him. And ultimately, he was faithless to his God. And yet, he declares with confidence at the end of Romans 4, verse 8, Blessed are those whose sins the Lord remembers no more. Because David knew that he was not saved by his good works. He was not saved by adding to anything that Christ had done. And he was not saved by his ability to change his emotions and muster up faith. He was saved by faith alone in Christ. This morning, 
what I want to do with you is read the, the, the last several verses of Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 9. We'll read all the way to 25. And what we're going to do is just be encouraged by the story of Abraham. In the same way we briefly looked at the story of King David, we're going to spend pretty much the entire morning look at this, looking at the faith of Abraham in a way that I hope will encourage you. I will apologize right up front and let you know that the word circumcision is going to be used in a ridiculously amount of times here coming up. So if you woke up thinking, boy, I hope we talk about circumcision at church, you're lucky. If you were the other 99% of us, I'm sorry. We won't go into it in depth, but that's coming our way. And before we read it, I want to kind of summarize what we're going to read. I want to give you the big idea of where we're going. And this will be weed through the whole message. If you take anything else out of today, if you're a note taker, jot this down. This is what I want you to remember. Here's, here's what faith alone in Jesus looks like. If you're a Christian, there is always hope. If you're a Christian, there's always hope. And faith alone in Jesus looks like unwavering hope in the promises of God, which make God always happy to see you makes God always happy to see you. You see, we're going to read through this, and you might be thinking, boy, an unwavering hope. That sounds like something I could never attain. Before you jump to conclusions, let me, or jump to certain assumptions, let me encourage you that, that Abraham's unwavering hope is not what you're thinking. And also, as we read through this text, we're going to come, come, come across a statement, not circumcision, but credit, credited as righteousness. It's going to be said over and over and over again. And I think sometimes when we hear that, that's a real churchy way of saying you're made right with God, right? When God looks at you, he sees you as blameless. But I don't want you to just say, okay, that's nice. God sees me as right. He sees me as good. He sees me as blameless. Here's what I want you to hear when we read credited as righteous. It means that God is always happy to see you. Because of Jesus, when you put your faith in him, God looks upon you and he is always happy to see you because you have been covered for all of your sins, all of your failures, all of your screw-ups and mistakes. Because of Jesus Christ, when you put faith in him, God is always happy to see you. That's what it means to be credited as righteous and that's why you should care. Because I have a sneaking suspicion that many of you here this morning, when you think about God, you don't think of a warm father who cannot wait to embrace you. You think of a grumpy judge who can't wait to bring the pain. And that is a false picture of who your father in heaven is. God is happy to see you always if you have faith in Jesus Christ. This comes from Romans 4. Romans 4, verses 9 through 25. It's going to get a little bit wordy. I apologize for that, but we'll spend some time explaining it here afterwards. Romans 4, 9 through 25. Paul says, is this blessedness, this reality that I'm saved, that God is always happy to see me, that I've been credited with righteousness, that the Lord remembers my transgressions no more, is this blessedness only for the circumcised, for those who do good works, for those who practice ceremonies, or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. God is always happy to see Abraham. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that the righteousness might be credited to them by 
faith. And he then is also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith of their father, Abraham, had before he was circumcised. It was not through the law that Abraham had and his offspring received the promise that he would be the heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend upon the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath and when there is, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, verse 16, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only those who are of the law, but also those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all, verse 17, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. In verse 18, here's the big idea. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, really? Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet, he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were not written for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. <clears throat> All right, as I said, very wordy section of scripture. What I want you to remember from it is that faith alone in Jesus looks like unwavering hope in the promises of God that makes God always happy to see you because Christ's righteousness has been applied to you. And there's a lot that we could unpack through these verses of Romans. But rather than that, I just want to tell you the story of Abraham and ask the question, what does unwavering faith look like in Jesus? What is this faith that Abraham had that made God always happy to see him? If you didn't grow up in church, that's okay. If you don't even know who Abraham is, you're about to get a crash course in who he is. You'll discover a man named Abram way back in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 11. 11. Abram is his name. He, he gets a new name later after the Lord uh, makes a, a deal, a covenant with him, but he's known first as Abram. And in the Old Testament, they used to name people a little bit different than, than we do. Today, we, we kind of figure out, hey, what sounds good? What do we like? What's trendy? This, that, or the other thing. Names are are not as big of a deal as what they were back then in the Old Testament. You see, when your father and mother gave you a name, it was almost like giving you a destiny, putting, putting a destiny upon you. And so Abram was given his name, and in Hebrew, Abram means exalted father. Exalted father. And you can imagine 
In a time like this where growing up in a farming culture where your wealth was measured by the amount of property that you owned and how big your family was that could help you take care of that property. They didn't have social security. Their welfare system was kids and grandkids, right? And so you can imagine growing up with a name like Exalted Father, that was a very hope-filled thing, a very, very promising, bright future, until it wasn't. Until it wasn't. You see, when we come across Abram here in Genesis 12, we're told that he's 75 years old, and the only kin that there is to speak of is his nephew, Lot. Apparently, for the last 75 years, him and his wife, Sarai, have been able to conceive. They've been unable to conceive. Now, I know that there are several in here that have struggled with infertility, and you know how difficult that is. Two years, three years, five years. Struggle. Abram and Sarai struggled until into their early 70s, late 70s. He's 75 at this time, childless, with a name like Exalted Father. You can imagine it's an incredibly painful thing for them. Well, we're told in Genesis 12 that the God of heaven, the God Most High, seeks out this retiree. Abram is living in the land of Ur, the land of the Chaldeans. It becomes Babylon later in Scripture, and today is modern-day Iraq. The people in the land of Ur, the Chaldeans, were pagans. They did not worship the God of heaven, Jesus Christ. They worshiped other gods, Baal, Asherah, you name it. Abraham grew up worshiping other gods, and yet the God of heaven seeks him out. Seeks him out in his retirement. How many of you who are retirement age are looking to start over? How many of you who are retirement age are looking to to pack up everything and to move someplace new? And not just move someplace new, start a new family. You ready to have a child? You see, Abraham, at this point in his life, I was thinking about it this week in my office, thinking, as a 75-year-old man, my guess is that he had a pretty settled plan for his life. For his retirement. Sure, God hadn't given him a child up until this point. I thought maybe he changed his name. He said, Don't call me Abram, it's too painful. Exalted Father, it's too painful. Just call me A Train, right? Just call me A Train. It's too painful. So he's got a nickname settled for himself and he's got a plan for his retirement. There's a nice golf course down there in the land of Ur. He's just built a nice house for his nephew Lot, and Lot's not his son, but maybe he can be a kind of stand-in grandkid or grand, grandfather for, for Lot's little ones. He's got his retirement all planned out, and the God of heaven shows up and completely alters his plans. He says, hey, I got something else for you. I want you to go where I will send you. I'm going to make you a father of many nations. I'm going to bless you, and through you, you will be a blessing to every person on the earth. But you have to go. You have to follow me. I will make you a father of many nations. Church, there is a lesson for us to learn here. For those of you approaching retirement, there is nothing wrong with, it, with, with retirement in one sense. What our world invites us into there is something wrong with. You and I never get to retire from being a Christian. and We never get to retire from the church either. 
God shows up and invites Abraham into something different, something new, something fresh. I spoke with our president, uh, the president of our lending arm in our denomination. It's called CSF, Christian Service Foundation. It's a bank that exists within the FEC, the Fellowship of Evangelical Churches. Our president is retiring. He's a man by the name Dave T. He's done in, in January. Great guy. I said, Dave, what are you going to do in your retirement? He said, Levi, that's a great question. It's one I've been praying about. For the last eight months, I decided I'm going to start making a list and invite God to show me what he would have me do with my new free time. I said, really? He said, yeah. I said, how many items are on your list? He said, well, I'm up to 42. I'm up to 42. I said, what kind of things? And he said, well, we're, we're starting a new African church planning initiative in Southern Africa. He said, I think they're going to need some help with finances. I think I'd like to help them with that. He's also moving down to Florida, which is awesome, but he's not just going to collect seashells for the rest of his life. He's in, he is allowing the Lord to reorient and use the time that he's been given in his retirement to continue to serve the church, to continue to serve the kingdom. There's a lesson in there for all of us. Abram meets the God of heaven. God makes a promise and gives him a command. He says, go, and I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, and I will bless the world through you. Can you even imagine this for a second? 75 years old, God's asking you to, to completely reorient your plans and change everything. Imagine you're 75 years old, you're, you're packing up a U-Haul, which is a miracle in and of itself, right? 75-year-old guy packing up his house into a U-Haul. Your family comes over and they said, Abe, what are you doing? A-Train, what you doing? It's like, oh, we're moving. Really? Where are you going? We don't know yet. What? You don't know yet? Yeah, I heard a voice from heaven. And he gave me a promise. He said, go where I'm going to go. I'm going to, I'm going to give you a land. Go and I'll show it to you when you get there. And I'm going to give you a son and make you the father of many nations. Really? A voice from heaven. You're losing it, Abe, in your old age. And Abe continues and he says, well, not only did, he, did the father of heaven tell me that he was going to bless me, he also told me that he will bless those who bless me and he will curse those who curse me. So, which one do you want to be? You going to help me load this thing or what? All right? All right? We're not told the response from the family, but you can imagine what that would be like. Abraham, in faith, steps out and follows God. In a situation that seemed hopeless, he believed in the promise beyond all hope. And God was always happy to see him because of that. They set out from the land of Ur. They traveled to Canaan. And along the way, God reaffirmed his promise again. I will give you a son. I will make you into a great nation that will bless the entire earth. And as those of you who know, who've ever started out to follow Jesus, it starts out excellent. It's a new way of life. There's a ton of zeal. There's a lot of freedom. And then life happens. Suffering comes. It's not always rainbows and unicorns. Abram comes up against it as well. He gets to this new land and a famine strikes. He heads off to Egypt with his wife. And it is here in Genesis that we discover Abram had married up. His wife is a bombshell. She is smoking hot. My paraphrase, not in the scriptures, right? She's a beautiful woman, which, good for you, Abraham. She's 65 and people are still taking notice. Good for you, dude, right? Good for you. Smoking hot wife. The Lord has blessed him. Turns out that's not always a blessing in the Old Testament. They get to Egypt, 
and everyone sees how beautiful Sarai is. So does Pharaoh. Pharaoh decides that, boy, he'd, he'd like to have her in his harem. Being the chivalrous and gen- gentlemanly man that Abram is, he gives his wife away to the king to be in the king's harem. Y'all know what that means? Women were not kept in a harem to help cook and clean. Women were kept in a harem to serve at the pleasure of the king. Now remember, God had promised to make Abram into a great nation. That only happens through descendants. But we've already been told that Sarah is barren. We don't know if it's her problem medically or Abram's problem. We just know that they are enabled to conceive. And so at the end of Genesis 12, we come to the first test of God's promise. Will God allow Pharaoh to be the one who kicks off Abraham's descendants? Seems like kind of a shady way to fulfill a promise from God, doesn't it? Certainly a lot more man-made than miracle, isn't it? You'd be right. If you know anything about God, you know that he's not really into man-made and he doesn't need our help to fulfill his promises. So rather than have Sarah be molested by this playboy king, God sends plagues on Egypt. Sound familiar? He sends plagues on Egypt. We're not told how Pharaoh finds out, but that he does. The Lord Most High lets him know, that ain't your wife, bro. Give her back, and I'll take the plagues away. He sends Abraham and Sarah packing. And you would think, at this point in the story, maybe God is reconsidering his choice of Abram. A guy that would give his wife away to a king to save his own skin. You would think in this point of the story that God is not happy to see Abram. And you would be wrong. You would be wrong. Because God is always happy to see Abram. Because he is happy to see him based upon the faith and belief that Abram has in the promise. You see, his faith in the promise didn't waver. I think he reasoned, well, maybe this is how God's going to do it. He tries to move God's timetable. He tries to help God in fulfilling the promise. He makes a mess of things. And you would think God is not happy to see him. But you would be wrong. You would be wrong. You see, God has credited Abram with righteousness by faith, not by works. A faith that sometimes makes mistakes, a faith that sometimes misunderstands, a faith that sometimes fails miserably. But that faith, that hope against hope that God will make good on his promise always makes God happy to see you and happy to see Abram. This is why I love verses 19 and 20 so much. Without weakening in his faith, yet he did not waver in his unbelief. Really? Is that really what hope and faith looks like? Dude, you gave your, you gave your wife away. Well, maybe God wants descendants to come through Pharaoh. Here you go, dude. Right? Here you go, take my wife. Folks, he does this more than one time. How many of you and women in here are like, dude, you only get once. You get me to a harem one time, you're done. (laughs) He does it twice, two times. And yet, and yet, God remains happy to see him. He remains happy to see him. God continues to give grace to Abram throughout Genesis 13 and 14. He continues to bless and prosper him. Another 10 years go by. Another 10 years, folks. Imagine knowing the promise from God 
that you will bear a son after 75 years of infertility and having to wait another 10 years. The Lord has blessed him. He's rich. Livestock, 300 men, an army. At this time, Abraham cries out to the Lord because he still has no son. He's 80 at this point. In the beginning of Genesis 15, he starts to question God about this. Lord, you've blessed me with all this stuff, all these servants, all this wealth, all this stuff, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it to a slave because you've not given me a son. What's up with this? God hears Abram's concern and responds. He reaffirms, Abraham, a son is coming. Wait on me. Go look out at the stars. You see how many there are? That's how many your multitude will be. I will bless you. Follow me. And in the end of Genesis, the Lord and Abram perform a covenant ceremony. A covenant ceremony is kind of like a modern-day contract, only different, okay? They would, they would shake hands, make an agreement, make an agreement on some type of deal they were going to do, a covenant. And then to seal the deal, rather than signing their name, is a little more graphic than that. They'd go out, they'd pick a couple animals, and they'd butcher them. They'd cut them into pieces and they'd line them on either sides of a path. And then the two parties in the covenant would walk through that path as if to say, may we become like these animals if either one of us fails to uphold our end of the covenant. In Genesis 15, Abraham and God enter into a covenant. God says, I will make good on my promise. So he says, Abe, go find some animals, cut them up. Dice them up, put them on either side, make a path. But before the two of them could walk through together, it says that God put Abraham in a deep sleep and God himself walks through that path. As if to say, if I fail to uphold my end of the covenant, or Abraham, if you fail to uphold your end of the covenant, then may I become like these sacrificed animals. Those of you who are good English students will know that that is called foreshadowing. And it's precisely what happens on the cross in Jesus Christ. Because you and me cannot uphold our end of the covenant. God has made himself like one of those sacrifices to make the covenant stand and hold so that we might know salvation and be saved by faith alone in Jesus. God reaffirms his covenant in Genesis 15 and then he asks Abram and Sarah to wait just a little bit more. But Sarah in Genesis 16 starts to get uncomfortable with God's plan. How much longer must we wait? Surely God could use some help in fulfilling this promise. So she comes up with a very man-made solution. Abraham, I've got a slave. You know we can't conceive. She's young. She's beautiful. Her womb works. Have her. Take my slave. And Abraham, again, being the the, the man of faith that he is, he says, may it never be. I've read Genesis 2.24. God says that marriage is between one man and one woman for life. Not one man and two women, right? It's not two plus one. It's not one and one and one and one. It's one man, one woman, not, not one man and one man or one man and, and one woman and one man and one woman or whatever in the hairy who knows what we can dream up. One man, one woman for life. Abraham says, no, I'm not gonna be a part of this. Let's wait on God. Let's trust his promise. You would think that's what a man of faith would say. But Abraham, this 86-year-old man, his wife comes to him and says, look at this beautiful young woman. I would love for her to share your bed. And he says, baby, I'm here to serve. (laughs) 
I'm here to serve. He takes Hagar into his tent. She becomes pregnant and gives birth to a man named Ishmael. And they live happily ever after. Wrong. Wrong. They don't live happily ever after. Sarah becomes insanely jealous and bitter. She starts harassing Hagar, Ishmael, and Abram. Abram's like, babe, I just did what you told me to do, and now I'm in trouble for it, right? Those of you with a spouse who've ever been asked to do something and have them get mad about it, you have a biblical marriage. This is a biblical marriage, right? Ishmael is born to Abram when he's 86 years old, and that unleashes a whole lot of strife into his family. Haggard runs away, and an angel has to bring her back. Sarah and her, they're not on speaking terms. It's a mess. It's a mess. Folks, that's the point. When we don't follow God's good design for marriage or anything else, a mess follows. A mess follows. And you would think at this point God is not happy to see Abram after all of this, and you would be wrong. God once again shows up four years later, an old A-train is 90 years old and once again reaffirms his promise and injects hope into a situation that seems hopeless. God gives Abraham a sign of the covenant. After he's expressed faith, as weak as it may have been, God says, I need you and your descendants to be circumcised at 90 years old, which the men in here know that is a very, very tall order, right? An act of faith and obedience, not just for you, but he has to talk his whole clan into this whole ordeal as a sign of the covenant. And he does. He follows God. He trusts him. Okay, I'll, I'll follow. I'll, I'll trust you. And God, who is still happy to see Abram, even after his royal failures, God says, Abe, I love you. I love you. But Ishmael, that was not my doing. I know you think he's the child of the promise, and you would be wrong. I had no part in this. That was you and Sarah's deal. I will cover that sin and I will look after that son, but that is not what I had in planned. He is not the child of the promise. Sarah will conceive and give birth to a son. And folks, at the ripe old age of 90, Sarah gives birth to a son. Ladies in here who are over 40, can you imagine giving birth? Now imagine that you're double that age, right? You send your husband out to, to get some diapers at Walmart, and he's like, well, for who? For you or for the child? <laughs> eh? That ain't natural, right? It's not natural. And that's precisely God's point. That's precisely God's point. He does not do natural. God does supernatural. He makes a way when there ain't no way so that we all might know it was by faith. There was no work. Abraham was asleep when God affirmed the covenant. Abraham was 100 years old. His wife was 90 years old when they gave birth to the child of the promise. They had no part in that. That was all the Lord. Faith alone in Jesus looks like unwavering hope in the promises of God, which makes him always happy to see us. He will make good on his promise. He will not do it on your timetable or my timetable. He will do it in a way that builds your faith and maximizes his glory. Abraham and Sarah had to wait another 10 years after that promise. They gave birth when he was 190. And it gets worse. After they've had the blessing of receiving the child of the promise, God asks for one final test. 
Abraham, how much do you trust me? How much will you hope in the hope of my promise? I need you to sacrifice the child of the promise, Isaac. I need you to kill him. Can you imagine struggling with infertility for a hundred years to finally have the fruition of God's promise and he says, now I want you to give up your one and only son. What's crazier is Abraham does it or at least he's about to. We're told in the scriptures that he raises the knife over his head and he's in this motion, fully intending to bring it down. And an angel has to grab his hand to stop him. And God says, now I know you hope in my promise. You have faith in me alone. You say, how would Abraham ever be able to do something like that? Well, it was over the years of God never being tired, never being tired of seeing him, always being happy to see him, that built a faith and a trust in him that no matter what God asked of him, he could follow through with it. And we're told in Hebrews how he made sense of this. In Hebrews 11, 17 through 19, it says, by faith, when God tested Abraham, Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned, Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And, in, and so, in a manner speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Faith alone in Jesus looks like unwavering hope in the promises of God. God never grew tired of Abraham. God never gave up on Abraham. God continued to work with Abraham to build his faith and joy so that when the ultimate test of loyalty came, Abraham was ready to trust God and hope in a situation where there shouldn't have been any. He came to know the goodness of God so well that even when God asked him to kill his one and only son, Abraham was able to trust and obey. He hoped in God's promises even when there shouldn't have been a reason to hope. Friends, if God was prepared to do this for Abraham, how much more will he do that for those of us who have put our faith in Christ? Faith alone in Jesus looks like unwavering, unwavering hope in the promises of God, which makes you righteous and makes God always happy to see you. May you know that truth in your heart today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're a mess. We have conflicting emotions. We, we some of us are lost, worshiping some other God other than you, practicing all kinds of who knows what. Thank you for the example of Abram. You sought out that man who was lost. You made it your life's mission to pursue him with love and grace. And simply because he had hope in your promises, that was enough. Thank you for his example, Lord, for his unwavering faith that sometimes made mistakes, that sometimes made a mess of things, that sometimes misunderstood Thank you that in all of that, 
you continued to pursue him. You continued to look upon him with love and with grace in a way that made him increasingly more free and more full of joy and more faithful to your will. May each and every one of us know that same love and grace in our life. Be patient with us, Lord. Help us know if we have faith alone in Christ, you're always happy to see us. You are with us. You are for us. You'll never leave. You are a strong God to us weak and frail people. And for that we say, thank you. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen.